This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. There's also a general focus around thinking about from the patient perspective, how are we boosting our reputation management? How are we boosting our marketing functions and patient acquisition functions? And generally, if we're going to be pushing patients into these care at home models and treating them remotely, there's the other half of the equation here, which is we need to ensure that these patients are properly activated and engaged in these models. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host for today's episode, Jamie Sage. I recently came across an interesting statistic that emphasizes the looming workforce shortage. Currently, there are five caregivers to persons needing care. And by 2023, we're going to be approaching a ratio of more like three caregivers to individuals needing care. It's a real call to action in my mind that we need to provide care in a different way. And we've been talking about digital health as part of the solution to our workforce challenge. As we think about extending our workforce, changing how, where, and who we deliver care to, I thought it'd be important to have an updated conversation on digital health, where it is today, where it's going. I've asked my colleagues, Corey Pegg and Andrew Rebhan, to join me today to provide that update. Thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here. Excited to be here. There's been a lot of activity in the digital health space, especially in the prelude to and even the winding down of the public health emergency. Let's spend a few moments on what are some of those key initiatives and impacts that we're keeping our eyes on for our members. We've been waiting quite a while for the official end of the public health emergency. I thought that a lot of our members would be inundating us with questions around some of these deadlines and concerns around some perceived cliff of these waivers. Actually, given the amount of lead time that we had leading up to the deadline, giving the fairly good communication from groups like CMS and others to indicate some roadmap for where to go with these waivers and flexibilities, the adjustment has not really been that bad. Certainly with the May 11th mark for the end of the PHE, there were some immediate effects, but even those almost just as quickly were given some grace periods to give us even further breathing room. If you think about, for example, HIPAA enforcement coming back into play, there's a 90-day grace period for that. That's going to kick in in early August. Providers offering telehealth or RPM to Medicare beneficiaries, they're no longer going to be in a position to reduce or waive any cost-sharing obligations that patients may owe for services. So that is an adjustment that they'll have to make. CMS is looking to re-implement some restrictions around the use of RPM for established patients, particularly restoring some of the requirements around the amount of data transmission requirements that need to happen for reimbursement. So I'm talking about for a 30-day period, they need to have 16 days of data transmission for particular reimbursement. The other big one that was tied to the end of the PHE was the end or potential end of the ability to virtually prescribe controlled substances. There was a ton of pushback on the initial proposed rules there. Now, those flexibilities have carried on through mid-November with additional year of extension for established relationships with certain providers. Lots of additional grace periods that came into play beyond everything else that was extended. So that's all the Medicare Category 3 or temporary telehealth services, 
flexibilities around virtual direct supervision and also some of the flexibilities around Medicare payment parity for telehealth services and non-facilities. Great. Thank you for that update. The other thing that we read about and hear about daily is artificial intelligence, AI. There are news articles, stories about AI in a whole host of industries, but obviously healthcare is another big one. Chat GPT just failed the gastroenterology test for certification. That was the first one we've seen where they failed. They originally had passed for medical school boards. Let's think about realistically in the short term, where do you see artificial intelligence having a real role in helping to solve some of these workforce challenges? What are we seeing that we're excited about? In the space of generative AI, there has been certainly a lot of attention in its different potential applications, just trying to balance the opportunities with some of the very real challenges that have been persisting in the AI space for years and years. We're still running up against a lot of challenges around things like biases and making sure that the training data is appropriate and so forth. One of the immediate applications that appears reasonable and doable is leveraging something like generative AI for supporting clinicians in their communications with patients. We're talking about the ability to leverage a tool that could help write notes, something that may be embedded in a patient portal that can help patients to understand something like a disease summary, explaining their medications or their lab results. You could use something like ChatGPT to help simplify medical jargon. It could instantly translate language. And we're even seeing this be put into play with some big names. We've seen from the headlines recently that Epic partnered up with Microsoft to leverage GPT in order to pilot how clinicians can start to develop early drafts in their patient messaging. So leveraging AI for the sake of producing that first draft that a clinician could then quickly review, confirm, and then send on to the patient. This would alleviate just a lot of the additional work that has been coming their way. We've seen uptick in volumes of patient messaging coming in through the portal, and it's been swamping a lot of clinicians who are already pretty busy as it is. This is a big development because we've got Epic as a core EHR throwing their hat in the ring, saying that they're committed to testing this out. And they've got a couple of big name systems that are going to be piloting this new function. You've got the likes of Stanford, you got UW Health in Wisconsin, UC San Diego, and most recently, UNC Health, who are all looking to pilot this application of generative AI. To Andrew's point, we are seeing this interesting collaboration between health system along with partners to add to the Epic and Microsoft partnership. We recently heard about HCA partnering up with Onmedics. And not only is it a partnership, they actually invested $12 million with into the solution so that they could scale it across their organizations. The work that Onmedics does is exactly what Andrew was describing. How do you really change the workflows within the organization to help alleviate some of the challenges that we continue to see in the workforce. Oddmedics converts clinician and patient conversations into medical notes and embeds it into the EHR that could aid in helping with some of the administrative tasks and allowing clinicians to really get back to patient care. Let's talk about other things besides AI. Going beyond that, what are some of the other innovations that organizations need to be paying attention to? That could be a very long list. 
AI is going through a bit of its own hype cycle right now. So a lot of the attention has been focused on that. Given the general pullback that we've seen in the markets around investing in digital, it seems like AI came in in the clutch to regenerate all this attention to how technology could be leveraged. That's great in one sense, but certainly to your point, there are a lot of other areas that we should be thinking about how to potentially leverage digital technologies outside of the immediate applications of something like AI. I don't really have specific technologies, so to speak. It's really more of the application areas that are going to be more top of mind for folks these days. We're seeing more attention around remote patient monitoring, just given that it's a natural evolution beyond the focus of establishing something like a video visit function in the broader telehealth space. I feel like most of our members are fairly comfortable with a lot of their telehealth infrastructure, given the amount of attention required in the early days of the pandemic. Now we're moving on to how do we establish remote monitoring functions that could support care at home models and these next stages of care delivery. Seeing more attention around things like self-service functions, particularly around patient scheduling. There's also a general focus around thinking about from the patient perspective, how are we boosting our reputation management? How are we boosting our marketing functions and patient acquisition functions? And generally, if we're going to be pushing patients into these care at home models and treating them remotely, there's the other half of the equation here, which is we need to ensure that these patients are properly activated and engaged in these models. We can only do so much by supplying them with a bunch of connected devices or mobile apps and hoping that the technology will work its magic. We need to leverage technology in the same way to engage those patients, whether it's through behavioral nudges, and those can be automated to a point, but then also facilitating the appropriate communication channels with the care team. So having those social support structures enabled by technology that can also activate and engage patients in their care. Andrew is completely on point here where we talk about where we're starting to see some of the investments and it really is enabling care and helping through that care continuum as well as care management aspects. When we think about the funding that we saw in first quarter, it was 3.4 billion globally, 2.3 billion US space. But one of those small unicorns, because there weren't many, was Carbon Health. And Carbon Health really is looking at how do you take a mobile-based platform to help with that care continuum and to really be able to engage all of those that are a part of your team in one easy platform that patients can use. Some of the other areas that are continuing to emerge are areas that are focused on women's health and chronic disease management. I just mentioned to you what we were seeing in that first quarter funding. Another one of those large unicorns, because there were only three, was Kind Body, which is really focused on women's health from fertility to menopause and watching through that whole platform. We're also starting to see things that are coming out specifically in the autism space or the obesity space that are unique and new emerging areas that I think we just need to watch. We've obviously seen different trends across the last few years, and these particular areas are ones that are rather new and that will get a lot of leverage as we continue to see what happens in digital health over the next few years. Thank you for that. You mentioned, Corey, the unicorns, and I've been watching paratherapeutics for many years because of my work in the behavioral health and the substance use disorder space. And this is a company that was the first to get an FDA-approved clinical app, but now they've filed for bankruptcy and their assets are being broken up by a group of different buyers that was approved by the judge just in the last couple of weeks. 
there are others that have been labeled as those unicorns that have struggled. Not that I want to focus on any of the failings here, but Corey, what does it take for those organizations, those companies, those innovators to be successful? What are you seeing as some of those things that get them to long-term success? It's one of those areas that we all had great hopes for paratherapeutics, who was really going in to tackle challenges that we were seeing. I don't think this is an area, though, to give up on. Taking those learnings and being able to move forward at play here, we still have to understand that we can't underestimate the change elements and what needs to be in place to be able to move forward. We have to look at continuing the implementation and the service models that fall on that rely less on what the actual tech is or the platform is, but really get into how do we deliver that core change and be able to help organizations with workflows, with how they use the technology, how they embed it into their everyday. With that said, we have learned that you do need clinicians at the helm, and you also can't rely on health systems to be your pilot organizations. They need to be able to get in the weeds with you and to be able to help innovate, not necessarily just be a user of the technology. I may take a little bit of a bigger picture on this question. I'm remembering this tool. It's called a Lean Canvas. It's basically a business template. It's been widely spread. If you haven't heard of it, look it up. It's a really useful template to have, and it's particularly useful for a lot of these digital startups that may find themselves struggling as of late. It's just a mapping of really what's your business case getting into the digital health space, defining your target customers, their problems, building out a solution that you think will address those problems. But then you got to get some of the basics. You got to establish inbound and outbound communication pathways with customers. You got to develop your revenue streams, your potential cost structures. You have to develop your KPIs and so forth. What's most meaningful in this template is defining an unfair advantage that your company has. So this is essentially something that your business offers that cannot be easily replicated or easily bought. This is arguably the most difficult part of the tool, but it's also something where it's just the most innovative companies that can fill out that portion of the Lean Canvas tool. A group like Pear was, in many respects, ahead of its time in terms of what they were ultimately trying to do in the digital therapeutic space. They took a lot of criticism and a lot of skepticism from the markets, but some of the factors may have been just a little bit out of their control as far as appropriate reimbursements structure that could have helped to kind of build the case for what they were ultimately looking to do in the market. This goes back to early stage planning of a digital startup as far as ensuring that you may have the technology in place that's quite innovative, but if you're not addressing all of these critical structural points of your business plan, you may ultimately run into a brick wall. Andrew, it reminds me of how do you take a challenge that somebody is incurring and make it where they need your technology or they need your solution to be able to solve for that? It's definitely one that will continue to watch. And it makes you wonder if there will be a pair, for lack of a better term, 2.0, considering that some of the IP and the platform is being procured by some of the initial founders that it makes you wonder if it'll come back around. I want to leave our listeners with some insights into where they need to keep their focus in terms of moving forward with their digital health plans and strategies. What would you recommend that they be doing to keep moving forward? 
One thing that I always bring up in these types of conversations is mastering the basics. We're talking about getting the strategic alignment and governance in order, understanding that digital health or the broader digital transformation call to action typically requires something like a revisiting of your organization's culture and understanding, do we have the right leaders in place who are going to drive this forward? Then you got to think about, do we have the right skill sets? And if we don't, are we plugging those gaps with the appropriate partnerships? All of that is really setting more of a foundation for the technology, which should come next. This is whether it's more of a IT infrastructure play or whether it's something of an emerging digital platform that everyone's trying to figure out these days. We often just say, look, it's the people, the processes, the culture. This is all going to be what needs to be put in place first before we start thinking about the technology. All right. That's all we have time for today. I am so grateful, Corey and Andrew, for you sharing your insights with us and with our listeners. Thank you all for your time and attention. And we'll see you next time on SG2 Perspectives. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments, or ideas for episodes. And you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Vizient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at vizientinc.com backslash podcasts. <laughs>